0: And welcome to yet another episode of the Dicer Screen Podcast. Oh, oh brought to you by that yell. Oh. <laughs> hey, I'm Randy.
1: <laughs> I'm Mike.
0: And welcome to our podcast coming at you once a week here, live or recorded live or well, lively recorded. Recorded <laughs> lively. We'll figure it out. Recorded in front of a dead studio audience. That's right. I killed them myself. Oh. <laughs> Outstanding. Freshly. Yeah, welcome to Spooktober, or Halloween (laughs) time. Yeah, it's the month of spooky stuff, and normally we'd be doing a lot of spooky stuff, but this podcast is scary all on its own. We don't need with what's happening in real life to have any competition with that.
1: Oh, no, no, no. We
0: could never run into that.
1: (laughs) Ah. Um, We cannot compare to real life. No. We are but the... Uh, well-intentioned, but hideously botched science experiment of oh, gaming podcasts.
0: Good good one, good one. Yes, we Thank are you. some weird <laughs> laboratory experiment gone rogue and wrong at every angle, but yet we're still here. So, hey... Uh, the laborious laboratory. Yeah, so it's been a pretty good uh, start of October. Uh, besides some of the thrills and chills of what's going out there in the real world, we're here uh, just basically keeping the home fires burning and all the dice rolling.
1: Savoring those fall evenings. Yeah.
0: And uh, we hope you are too. Let us know. Uh, give us a call and let us know how your October's going. And hopefully it's a suitably scary one, not a horrifyingly screaming scary one like it's shaping up to be. Before Election Day. So, uh, speaking of that, we have some call-ins to get to before we turn into topic tonight. So, uh, Jason's calling in with uh, his uh, thoughts on our last episode, which was Nautical Adventures. So, take it away, Jason.
1: Hey guys, Jason here. Just want to say I really appreciate the Nautical episode. It was perfect timing in my Barbarians Lemoria Mythic Greek game. They're just about, this next session, they're going to take off, they're going to board a ship and take off they're going to go to Sicily and tr- try to go to Mount Etna and get his feastus to uh, make them some magic weapons so of course that's never as easy as, as you think it'll be right But so this I'm just dipping my toe in the nautical thing but this w- isn't a full nautical campaign but I do want to run a pirate game at one point mainly because I want to talk like a pirate matey Arr. so we'll see how that goes but appreciate the episode you're doing a great job and look forward to the next one. Take care.
0: All right, Jason. Thanks a lot again. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. And, yeah, timely as it is, uh, fortuitously so. Yeah.
1: So very happy that it turned out to be a useful episode in game terms. Because, you know, that's one of the wonderful things about DMing is that you find yourself uh, obligated. I I say obligated, but I don't mean that in a negative way. You know, you, you become obligated to learn things about history that you didn't know you'd need to know going in. And then you wind up having this like exploration and discovery constantly with facet after facet of history. It's just one of my favorite parts of gaming. Uh, it, it makes me have to go learn new stuff. And I love that. I'm so
0: in. Yeah, so uh, glad it was useful to you. And, you know, um, some of the terminology uh, for nautical terms is lost on the people I've had numerous times to explain port and starboard. Because to me, it's intrinsic after being on the sea for a while. You, and also the Marines who tend to describe things not left and right, but port and starboard. And then left and right. So you have to learn both Gee. nautical oh. and the typical nomenclature. That is associated with directions. So, yeah. Fun stuff.
1: <laughs> um, All those crazy sea people. Yeah. Why couldn't they just let things be named what they are? You know? It just... you know, what, what was wrong with left and right? <laughs> no, we got to make this more complicated. Makes it sound like we're doing something mysterious and cool.
0: Well, you know, you could use Dexter and Sinister. <laughs> the Roman legions.
1: Oh, my gosh. Dexter and Sinister.
0: Yep. Cute. Good. Right word. hand, left hand. Sinister, yeah. left hand. Dexter, right hand. You're mean.
1: The sinister left hand. Yes. Whoa. You have fallen prey to the sinister cabal. <laughs> They're all left-handed. What?
0: I don't understand.
1: <laughs> Nobody understands this. So yeah, but yeah, glad that
0: uh, more than just nautical terms and strange accents. There's a lot of fascination to the sea, and it is uh, a ripe element for many a campaign, even if you're just a, a diversion or a long-term planned out campaign, it, it's all the same. It's always good to break up the monotony, and it's not like any other campaign you played before if you're doing a long-term one, so yeah. Or oh yeah, that's
1: um, A largely above the water line uh, seaborne adventure is a wonderful wonderful change of pace it it puts uh, you know even the limited space available on a on a ship surface uh, should there be a fight on the deck you know puts a very different spin
0: on oh what the yeah players are Kona used Cold to. and prismatic spray on a deck is just
1: oof yeah i forget it you know you you've just nerfed them i mean if they're they're on their own deck and it's a large group of people in a fray uh, it becomes so muddied as a melee that You know, area effect spells are almost effectively useless. Uh, It's just a DM's wonderland.
0: (laughs) Lots of damage, too.
1: All right. Complete with evil cackle.
0: All right. So, uh, well, that's going to do it for our call ins. Thanks a lot, Jason. And uh, the rest of you out there, I hope you're enjoying as well. But uh, anyway, we're going to get on to the topic. We're just going to take a quick break and pause for a little advertisement and then back at it. So, stick around. Alright, and welcome back. Uh, Yeah, so topic tonight. Topic, topic, topic. What are we going to talk about? Oh, I know. It's October. Let's talk about scary stuff. Oh, no. Okay, we already said we weren't going to do that. What we are going to talk about is pulp. And while we have delved into pulp before, tonight we're going to delve into the early roots of pulp, namely in science fiction. Now, this isn't going to be a gaming-heavy topic, but it is going to kind of be a ramble on about where science fiction came from and some of our thoughts and favorite things, which does apply to Appendix N, so you can link into that. But we thought that we would have a discussion, since this is kind of a Halloween topic, about some of the early influences that later would become science fiction. So I'm just going to hand it over to Mike and start us out. What is the first pulp science fiction?
1: Uh, I am not alone in the opinion that uh, while there are fantastical pieces of speculative fiction that predate what I'm about to mention, uh, they leaned towards exactly that word fantastical. Uh, They did not attempt to explain exactly what mechanisms uh, were involved. Uh, no real attempt was made to explain why these amazing things were happening. So the core difference is that in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, oh, you know, rolling yes. the yeah, rolling the clock back to the like n- well, almost exactly two hundred years ago. I mean, just a couple of years short, but yeah, uh, but a couple of hundred years ago, uh, Mary Shelley, the wife of Percy Biss Shelley, the poet, uh, wrote Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. And in this, science was the prime mover in the plot, uh, with its enormous <clears throat> questions about life and death, uh, the relationship between man and God, uh, just a fantastic allegorical tale. And science, for the first time, played a huge central role in explaining how these events came to pass. Uh, That was an incredibly new thing for that time. And so here's this underrated novel that just lurked in the background, but it had an enormous ripple effect. It opened the door to later authors, who would then follow suit and use science as the prime mover in their fiction. Well, yeah, and it was also written in the 1800s,
0: 1818 to be exact, when it was first published. And of course it was a little writing competition, and you're probably all familiar with that. But the nice thing is there are themes of occultism, and even, well, of course, horse horror. There's the grotesque, and there's the five forms of horror. Two of which are present. But more importantly, it's not just the horror of the act of creating uh, (laughs) the Frankenstein's monster. It is even in its creator, and the creation is horrified. They're all like, everybody's really scared. Okay, yeah, I get it. But okay, Mm -hmm. kidding aside, (laughs) there is a lot of horror going on here, and not much occult. Although there are some uh, tropes and themes that are hinted at. The delving into the nature of life and death, the afterlife, that, you know, in the animate clay is made living once again, what enters, you know, where, what of the soul and such certain things about that. But, you know, uh, science fiction novel, the first one, yes, it was com- it, she didn't exactly go through the process. I mean, everybody associates Frankenstein with the Doltish monster that was portrayed by Boris Karloff, no offense to Karloff's interpretation. Christopher Lee would do it for hammer horror films.
1: Yeah, uh obviously this, was not, later on. this was not micro specific hard science, but the the pretty clear implications were that, you know, these
0: are Elemental you know, forces had to be harnessed in order with which to trigger the original convulsions of life within this inanimate object now. correct uh, too you know. so there was a little bit of the Golem that's not I thing. was
1: about to say yeah exactly an excellent point that uh, you know the inspiration for Frankenstein would go back to uh, you know the tale of the Golem which uh, <laughs> you know inanimate clay made life uh,
0: yeah and also uh, I guess the castle that they were layered up in, an alchemist had engaged in experiments two centuries earlier, which uh, lent an air of mystery about the place, which caused. It wasn't
1: him, by any chance John D. Was it?
0: I'm, I'm not sure. A
1: uh, better uh, Magnus. Uh, yeah, Alpha you might get. Yeah, Magnus von Magnusson. Ah,
0: you know, he's so cool. He's like a German rock metal musician, you know, Magnus von Magnuson, von Magnusson son.
1: <laughs> wow. Und his band. Yeah, he's from yeah. Norway. <laughs> it uh, has a good beat and I can dance to it. So, uh, would you like to touch my monkey? No, I <laughs> I don't. no, thank you. No, we're past. So
0: we're uh, gonna go back on uh, some hardened chops here. There's a couple from Jules Verne.
1: That... I, I I gotta roll back one okay. more thing about Frankenstein. Just okay, that like at the time it was written, uh, Percy oh, yeah. Miss Shelley and his wife Mary Shelley uh, were basically holed up in a castle with Lord Byron. That could be a horror si-
0: story in and of itself.
1: Well, not a horror story. Uh, you oh. Know, uh, oh it's yeah. a romantic fan fiction that <laughs> uh, may have come to life on its own. I, I think that uh, <laughs> uh, that monster got brought to life. Ooh. But uh, they were competing to write things, and out of that competition came her, you know, first proto work that ultimately became the finished work, Frankenstein. Uh, so, I mean, kudos to them. Uh, who throws a party and then changes the world of literature forever? Because contest.
0: Right. And yeah. like I was alluding to, I guess, uh, maybe fill in a gap here or two. That
1: yeah, Byron is my power animal. I mean, y- y-
0: so. There you go. Yeah, you can't go wrong with Byron. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people associate the electrical gizmos, the Tesla coils, you know, that creepy laboratory oh, kind yeah. of stuff. With the Universal film, which is so iconic that actually now that any story involving Frankenstein, which I would also be remiss if we didn't mention Von Helsing, my other favorite uh, movie, gets a lot of poo-pooed by some critics, but I like it. Uh, Since it was Universal, they were able to use that again. But, you know, there were so many things that she said uh, or intended it to be, and it later is now attached to that. That has been forgotten as well as added on. So it has become almost mythologized in film and our popular literature. Um, I think that uh, Boris Carlos' iconic portrayal is become iconic just for the fact that it was so, at the time, shocking. Oh, yeah. It, it, it was so stark. It was literally a... He the makeup artist, and all the effects had achieved what she had set out to do. So I think on that part, anybody who says, well, it's not really true because now the Frankenstein is the monster rather than the crater, which, hey, there's a point to argue in the book,
1: <laughs> which is the
0: monster. You know, uh, they go through it. And uh, that she developed this, and of course she was known for her poems afterwards as well and some of her other writing, that she created science fiction that a lot of people consider the first true science fiction story and like mike so eloquently put it that there were terms of fantastic in other attempts at this but
1: um, yeah Voltaire's uh, Candide is uh, well and other tales are you know full of fantastical occurrences uh, Gulliver's Gulliver's travels uh, again you know it, yeah. it stretches the bounds of credulity goes to fantastic places uh, these are things that they make no attempt to connect science to an explanation, not even a cursory attempt. It is simply assumed that the fantastic or the mysterious or the heavenly, uh, be it divine or magical, something is uh, the prime mover of events, and it is not science. So that's what puts Miss Shelley completely apart from the pack. It's one of my all-time favorite reads, and I still think it's one of the great books of the last couple of thousand years. You know, a truly remarkable event that put things in motion that led to an entire genre I love. So, totally. yeah,
0: and it inspired, you know, uh, plays and film and radio shows and all sorts of things. You know, comic books and uh, literature is rife with the invention spring from her initial tale, so.
1: Yeah, the curious invention that uh, suddenly makes the incredible possible.
0: Yeah, the science was accomplishing great things. Now, we're going to move it all along, and yes. Jules Verne, burn, and uh, we could talk about uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Mission to the Moon. Um, and those are traditional ones, but the ones we want to focus on is Around the World in 80 Days.
1: Yeah, because this is a moment of grounded literature. Yeah, okay? there was
0: a fantastical sub that You know, called the Nautilus, the first nuclear sub in the world, was the USS Nautilus, which was powered by a primordial force of untappable or unexhaustible energy. Uh, Yeah, atomic energy, anyone? Guy called it. And, you know, Cape Canaveral for the mission of the moon? Yeah. But some of the other elements were a little, yeah, okay, they did stretch the credulity. But here's <laughs> one where, as Mike says, is perfectly grounded. So yeah, i shut
1: up. The wonderful thing about Around the World in 80s days is that it was more, less like s- true speculative science fiction. Uh, it was grounded completely in what had already been provably achieved. But it was a celebration of how far transportation had advanced in that century, in the the century prior to that, that it was now possible to circle the globe uh, in, uh, well, less than three months, uh, a thing that to the overwhelming majority of humanity seemed as though it was still speculation, like, no, it can't be done. Uh, And the book basically cast down the gauntlet and said, no, no, I dare to prove you wrong. Uh, It is a fun read, uh, a humorous read at points, Uh, (laughs) uh, with many twists and turns and ups and downs and, you know, advantage gained and uh, opportunities lost as the hurry goes to win the bet, with uh, Phileas Fogg trying to beat the gentleman's club uh, and make it back to his original starting point in just 80 days.
0: Yeah, and a I'll, I'll fun fact about it is that at the time of the writing, the international dateline did not exist. Ah, uh, correct. Correct. Uh, because that's how rare intercontinental travel was, and circumnavigation of the globe was a massive undertaking for centuries and now just in this age it was becoming possible to do so and not only do so but do so in somewhat comfort and well with a sane amount of time now when it came out a lot of people at the time said all oh, pish posh this could never happen you know it at least <laughs> takes you know a hundred you know 60 80 days to get through there and you know because Suez Canal and all this but you know he had act meticulously planned it out and watched and observed train schedules and other things and made a very fair guess that if you really pushed the raw edge and, you know, use transportation, telegraph ahead of time, all the components of modern technology, including air travel by balloon, yeah, then you can accomplish this task. Now, you know, later, you know, even just a couple decades, it was like, oh, 80 days, psh, that's slow.
1: <laughs> yeah, it didn't take long for that to to change, but this was a book that, openly acknowledged that the world was shrinking in effective size owed to speed of communications and speed of travel. And it presaged the era in which we live in now, where it, there was an understanding in Verne's writing that this was a process that was likely to continue. that It would keep getting smaller, and it would keep getting faster. Yep. And you know what? He was not wrong. Uh, no. but it, that may not have been his most speculative work. I'm so glad you mentioned the uh you know 20,000 Leagues Beneath the Sea mm-hmm. because that is like true speculative science fiction. Uh doesn't go into the absolute hard and rigid details the, that we began to expect of hard science fiction later, but it does meet the criteria. And you
0: know, more than that, it was a The technological innovations of the 19th century had really changed the way people viewed the world. And now it fascinated so many people at the time that I think it is worth noting that it is a work of speculative fiction that had its groundings in the real world, which makes the application of science fiction more than just imagination. Now, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a a submersible vehicle, I mean, there had been a few submarines, the Hunley and the Turtle, in the American Revolutionary War, but the Hunley during the uh, American Civil War,
1: oh, the Monitor and the Merrimack. Oh. Well, the
0: Hunley was the first true, uh, yeah. real submarine. Well, of course, tragically, you know, it uh, killed most of its crew. Um, yeah, it wasn't until later, but you know, the fact that the Nautilus was before really the first viable use of a submarine as a military vehicle, and of course, he, you know, just had a spar, which was a torpedo. At the tip of it, but uh, was an explosive device and ram ships also cut them through? Cut through them. Uh, it was still kind of like uh, you didn't have any practical application for it, but the fact that a, a, a vehicle, a single underwater vehicle, could achieve such devastation on shipping <laughs> was, well, you know, kind of a lot of people did raise some eyebrows outside of those circles. And uh, later, uh, you know, the American uh, Navy along with the British, they started looking very seriously at the submarine as yeah. a military vehicle. And I'm not saying that Jules Verne specifically uh, put them in it because the Hunley had already been practiced on, but the, just the idea that once you had a secure source of power uh, prop- and method of propulsion, that you could really do a lot of damage with one of these vehicles. And
1: uh, the, the longer you didn't need to go home... The more dangerous you were.
0: Yeah, and we're just talking about the Nautilus or the nuclear-powered submarine. I mean, up until that time, all submarines were basically amphibious vehicles. I mean, they could go underwater for a while, maybe up to, you know, some cases uh, under duress, forty-eight hours. Yeah. But they had to resurface to recharge or to uh, recharge the batteries and replenish the air. Now they stay
1: submerged all the time. Yeah. No, to form mr verne had extrapolated from what already had been accomplished uh, and pushed it forward in imagination to what was ultimately going to be its conclusion uh, yeah. uh, again that is a rare gift
0: yeah and the fact that uh the um around the world in 80 days although a fun novel it was also uh the start of Global tourism and the fact that anybody in relative comfort and safety could sit down, draw up a schedule, buy tickets, and travel around the world. A feat previously only reserved for, you know, adventurers and the most hardy of people. You know, you'd have to go across here on with pack animals and <laughs> supplied and provisioned <laughs> properly across these great areas. No longer. A train would do it. And yeah. so yeah. Uh, So that's where a more practical advance to science fiction, and that's where we wanted to pay a little homage to Mr. Verne. He did a lot for us. But uh, here's the one where we get back into the creepy part. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson.
1: Ah, and I mean, this uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, some may remember him as, uh, you know, Robinson Crusoe and things like that. Uh, But Mr. Stevenson... In the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, once again we see science as the prime mover, like a desire to use uh, chemistry, anatomy, and understanding... Yeah, chemistry which
0: was usually uh, reserved for alchemy in the older
1: times. Yeah, once upon a time it would have been a magical kind of alchemy, a kind of half chemistry, half magic uh, that people would attribute things to. Here, You begin to see the alchemy fade away into a proper, you know, it is the precise uh, chemicals mixed in such a way uh, and imbibed to deal with either mental well-being or, you know, poor mental well-being. So you're looking at uh, before the age of uh, pharmaceutical psychology, uh, a guy who is writing a story about pharmaceutical psychology
0: yeah and this is in the age when he wrote it let's see here it's uh, 1886 so yeah it's just right at the dawn of Freudian psychology I mean where and just a brief uh, apology here anybody who's gonna be scarred by what I'm gonna say about Freud uh, and Freud was exploring a new field and so later you know a lot of his stuff would be um, cast aside or disparaged it was a new field, and this is part of it, where you're yeah, taking I, the elements of the basic understandings of the psychology of the mind, the ego, the superego, and the id, all working the subconscious, conscious, and the hidden.
1: Yeah, you don't have to agree with it. The point is is that once upon a time, uh, you know, you, to deal with this in almost biblical terms, once upon a time with regard to psychology or the understanding of the human mind, there was nothing. There was a blank slate. Nobody knew anything. Nobody could even define the terms. There was, yeah, there was a, a,
0: a, a Greek and Persian uh, delving into the gnosis or the...
1: Yeah, the idea of knowing, the idea of understanding. And there were these loose proto-concepts, uh, but it had never been organized. Yeah, in kind of you modern. know, sometimes so a cigar... comes a guy, and he shows up, and he comes up with all the individual terms himself and tries to classify things and explain them. Yes, got it wrong... You know, we just want to go firmly on where right. It's Sometimes going. a
0: cigar is just a cigar,
1: yeah, it, it, just a cigar. So, the, the reference is purely for historical purposes, not a statement of our agreement. Now, point being, uh, this was an inspirational era, this was an era in which people were still really preoccupied with trying to find definitions for these things. And there's Robert Lewis Stevenson you know, leading the charge, literarily, uh, taking it in a strange, bizarre angle with a, yeah. a guy whose intentions are magnificent. You know, to
0: separate the to worst parts of a person's psychology or personality, takes them out and makes them go away.
1: Yeah, the weakness, the fear, the inhibition, the things that hold people back. Uh, but what are we without those?
0: And there you go.
1: There you get Mr. Hyde.
0: Yeah. Well, and of course a murderer and a involuntary and all these things that are despicable. But yet without them, we would be a lesser creature.
1: Yeah. At, that it's somewhere in between the the two extremes is that that person in the center that is well rounded, that gains from the struggle to control themselves, that, you know, in, in that you find a whole person, as opposed to the radical halves that is, you know,
0: malevolent addiction to... Oh, yeah, you know, addiction, addiction, uh, psychosis, uh, oh, geez, uh, you know, you can just go all the way down the line of all the things that even modern psychology and pharmaceutical studies still have yet to deal with. And even though, like, psychology still struggles with a lot of these things, this was a guy writing about it before we even knew about those terminologies and the psychosis of a dual personality as well as mental illness.
1: So these were things that... The true split personality had not really been firmly, uh, you know, written into some kind of DSM or recognizable form yet. Oh, yeah, that was so... The rigid definitions that we came to know years later had not happened at all so but
0: here's science fiction uh, defining it in a way that breaks it down for people in a in a method of a story a novella and spells it out quite literally so here we are starting to slip a little bit back into horror so
1: yeah likewise you know I mean again science fiction and horror do have a interlinked quality which I, it cannot be avoided because to a very great degree people respond with apprehension to things which are new and unfamiliar and unknown uh, it's that that very apprehension that makes it interesting our our hesitation that moment where you go what's well, about to happen i mean and, uh, i don't want to go too deep into lovecraft cuz we've we've covered that before yeah. but again you know it is the unknown itself That is the great fear. Yeah, and we could push
0: to Poe, but we're trying to stick a little bit more to the science fiction. Poe did have some scientific elements, but he was still more or less either completely grounded into... um, Geez, I I don't even want to call it uh, relativistic horror, but I just want to call it... Just Sometimes he had some mystical elements, Mask of the Red Death, definitely a fantastical... Tale of horror. But as we're delving into the treatment of science fiction, yeah, we're going into horror, so we're going to take a little step there. If we talk about pulp science fiction, we can spend a whole time on H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. So here we're going to come back to H.G. Wells. Yeah. To the island of Dr. Moreau. And that's in 1896
1: now HG Wells is a name. People will remember from the time machine, you know, here's war more, of the worlds. Yeah. These are classics that loom large and that eventually made their mark in, uh, like early radio shows, <laughs> terrifying the country. Uh, look that one up. Oh, well, I, or Orson Welles, you know, oh uh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, war of the worlds by, uh, sorry, uh, the island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells, it's one of those protean science fiction classics because again, as I've beaten it up before, the prime mover here is science. Uh, A man shipwrecked upon an island uh, and believing that uh, the the good doctor thereupon uh, is doing remarkable work for the benefit of humanity. Until the precise nature of his horrific experiments becomes clear. Yeah, he's like
0: uplifting. Ah, uh, animals, but it's not animals that are being it's men that are being lowered, and again, it's more. Here's where is the horror element of science fiction comes in. Just because science can do a thing, should it? And it brings into the question of morality, of ethics. And of the ultimate goal of what science can do. And left to its own devices, as Dr. Moreau is, he has no one to answer to but, as he often says, but God. And he's doing God's work. Where God (laughs) made a mistake, he's correcting that.
1: Yes, at last I have perfected the five-assed monkey. Sure, okay. All right, my South Park reference is out for the moment. But uh, the, the, the point is, this is a terrific novel that... Uh, again, science is both the hero and the villain, villain somewhere right. in here, okay? It, it's, it's potential to transform, uh, and it is accredited as the means for transformation uh, entirely. You know, there's no mystical nature to this. It is purely that uh, a firm understanding of the sciences has made this incredible breakthrough possible. However, once again the flaw uh is that humanity is in charge of this and humanity does not have a great track record <laughs> with making awesome responsible decisions with enormous right and here you know but
0: here are these chimerical uh i don't want to call them abominations but these aberrations that are created through cruelty and with no morality or direction after they fail to meet the standards of their quote-unquote creator or uplifter, they are then discarded as failed experiments and left to their own devices, which is horrifying. And then (laughs) on top of that, you also have that these, it was not any mystical element. It was a vivisection and the treatment of processes before we even knew what genetics was. Heck, DNA wasn't even really discussed other than in abstract forms until much later in the 20th century. So... Here again, science fiction doing something that later we would learn, like, wow, that is, you know, it is possible, and just because science can do a thing, should it do
1: a thing? Yeah, but Mr. Crichton with Jurassic Park, uh, you know, brings us full circle. I mean, it's an homage back to these classic novels that we have mentioned here. And sure, there's some people who say, well, you know, like, uh, 80 Days is
0: colonialism, and uh... You know, this oh, well, there's certainly... some racial overtones in uh, HG Wells. Okay, look,
1: we're uh, just touching I, on. The... I, I am going to say that, like everybody, past a certain point is pretty much guilty of that. Okay, it's it's it, nolo cantandre. Uh, nice job. The oh, you mean with the nolo cantandre? Yeah, no contest. Uh, the thing is. Uh, you move past a certain era, and the overwhelming daily preassumptions and educational preassumptions in at least the Western world were ludicrously biased, so that it 's literally impossible to separate the people of a particular time period from the prevailing beliefs of that time period it's all tainted goods, so there's just no way out of that right now that having been said, did they create something amazing or not? Yes, they did. And
0: it also inspired so many others in greater works and deeper investigations of these themes. And also presented the fascination with our connection to the part of ourselves, like with um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that are intrinsic. Our animal natures are indeed uh, very much a part of us still. No matter how high we think of ourselves, as greatly evolved intelligent beings, <laughs> oh, we still we, have a lot of ways of animal behavior still ingrained
1: deeply within us. Yeah, a lot of misbehavior owed to, you know, uh, impulse that is well, not... Yeah. Ignoble impulse leads us astray perpetually, and, uh, you know, sorry, we have no excuse for it. I mean, we have the capacity to Well, yes, but also like PTSD better.
0: is linked a lot into how we adapted to a more violent and feral world.
1: Oh yeah. And Look, so a lot you. of the
0: hyper vigilism that I uh, show it, combat zones, yeah, a great uh, tool for survival, but uh, it's an animal trait that's very, very important when you're in the wild and it, it's why I'm probably a pretty good hunter. but at the same time I no longer hunt and yeah Not, well. And I mean, so it's a useless skill for me, but you know it's darn annoying for some people to be around me.
1: Yeah, I, I got to say that uh, it's interesting you bring up the PTSD as part of the, the animal nature. Uh, I have always thought that uh, the process of trauma infliction on the human psyche uh, can take place in any number of ways. Oh, All yes. It's not even things. just from military uh, experience. And the basic human response... Like the two stimuli breaks down to one of two things, which is emergency responses and everyday responses, uh, and if you develop a habit of using the emergency responses during times and places where you should be using the everyday responses, this is where those two things come into conflict. It creates an enormous <laughs> so problem. these things don't go
0: together. Yeah. One of uh, these things is different.
1: And I, I referred to them as a crisis mind and prosperity mind. Yeah. Uh, that in a crisis mind in a prosperity situation is woefully out of place. And vice versa. Having a prosperity mind in a crisis situation could get you killed. Uh, but yeah.
0: There's so, still very good uh, reflexes but, to have from time to time.
1: And, you know, uh, I I think that I also respond Dr. to it. Dr. Jekyll and it. Mr. Hyde really kind of, you know, you're, you're seeing those those beautiful opposites. Yep.
0: Ugh. And also, Isle of Dr. Moreau. There are some yeah. traits of being, of animalism, like in a character like it, Wolverine.
1: Some of it is. A very popular uh,
0: comic book character that, you know, has very feral responses. And uh, rightfully so, because that's let him survive. And here we come to the pulp part uh, yeah, about survival. We're, we're, we're creeping back into the 20th century now. Yeah, we go to these, uh, I don't want to call them proto-science fiction, because they're not. They are fully valid science fiction. Maybe Mary Shelley's could be a stretch. I'm not going to make that argument. I think Mike's exactly right. I think it is really the first one. Uh where you don't see any fantastical elements entering, yeah. other than that of the soul, or
1: yeah, it's not magic. Is, it is, you know, uh, yeah, you're dealing it's not not with even meta- alchemical preparation. They called it, it, it galvanism, I yeah. think, at the
0: time, which
1: <laughs> rather
0: than metaphysical,
1: yeah, electromagnetism, yeah, galvanism uh, was
0: was was mentioned. So yeah, um, but here we go. You know, uh, into the age of the more pulp stuff. This is where we start to get close to Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. And again, they are uh yeah, Robert E. Well, Howard wasn't very science fiction, and Lovecraft had some scientific elements, especially at Mountains of Madness, if you don't believe me on that one, but still I will Fantastical.
1: I will pause for one moment on Robert E. Howard in the sense that he was historically and geographically literate on a level that most people could not even imagine at that time period. And Especially for
0: the medium he was writing in. In,
1: in the 1930s, uh, honestly, you really had to go to universities and then only to the you know, geographical and historical departments before you found people who knew of the ancient nations that he had read of. Uh, so Mr. Howard did his homework. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was
0: almost writing historical no. fiction, which had been a historical adventure fiction. Had been written by several other authors that names escape me at this moment. But
1: but we've flipped too far forward.
0: Yeah, now universe. we're not going to touch on them because they really weren't science fiction. And if we had to get to science fiction, you, you come slowly up onto what would really uh, loom large for the next 60 years, Doc Savage. Now, of course, from Doc Savage, uh, The Shadow... Yeah, uh, was a first, but from uh, that, then they started during these uh, pulp magazines, these uh, dime magazines that you would buy. Doc Savage was ver- uh, fully invented, full form.
1: Now, I, Doc Savage, you know, gets that special honorary mention. Uh, this was, you know, it was coming into being around 1932 and was first published by Street and Smith in 1933. Uh, and Doc Savage was merely a human being, but, you know, through diverse, you know, that that combination of exercise, meditation, you know, put through all of these things uh, by a a diligent parent, Uh, his father had trained him uh, continually, and he was already naturally gifted, brilliant, you know, a a true polyglot and polymath, uh, somebody with like an exceptional mind, who then proceeded to train that mind and train his body to such an extreme degree that he had approached the superhuman. Now, worth mentioning, uh Doc Savage may very well, at least in my opinion, be the uh, proto-beginning for Superman, uh, the comic book, in some respects, that having predated it in pulp publication by several years, not very many, but it tells you what was brewing at that moment. Uh, Now, Doc Savage had a team of diverse persons around him in the original tales. Uh, These eventually started to fall off in importance, and it started to, like, by the time they got to the uh, uh, other publishers of novels during the 1960s and 1970s, picking up the... Savage franchise, uh, they had really made it more about Doc Savage himself, but this was a purely human person who had pushed himself by means that were available to the farthest possible degree of extreme strength, endurance, intellect, uh, and ability. You know, pushing the boundaries of what we imagine a human being being capable of. Uh, And so in that respect, it was very much a work of science fiction. Uh, You know, it was often alluded to. uh, And being a scientist himself, Doc Savage. Oh yeah, doctor. Much of this uh, was referred to during the course of the series.
0: Yeah, and it had had the, the elements from like the shadow, the crime fighting, the detective...
1: Oh yeah, I mean this was pulp fiction after all, although it had also carried along the mantle of science fiction with it. But it was very pulp fiction. Yeah,
0: he had. Uh, he was in uh, the Empire State Building, had his own little uh, wing in there, and uh, could only be accessible. You know, that would be later seen in the Baxter Building of the Fantastic Four. You uh, had a lot of elements that would, of course, inspire others. But
1: oh yeah, yeah. I mean if you look at uh, things like. Uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and things like that—they mm-hmm. are all giving a backhanded nod, even Indiana Jones to a small degree. Uh, right, Alan Quartermain, which mm-hmm. admittedly was not particularly amazing stuff uh, to me. That might just be me, but uh, a lot of the uh, intellectual adventurer. Uh, yeah,
0: along with like Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, yes. Tarzan, and John Carter and the the
1: Hollow Earth. A nice relationship there. Uh, well, I mean, actually, Edgar Rice Burroughs, I believe, uh, you know, predates some... Oh, yeah, the, it does. But, yeah, you but, know,
0: uh, against uh, my fantastical... They, they stretch credulity. of...
1: Uh, but Doc Savage inspired an astonishing number of things. Now, I... It, it's just a personal theory. I'm actually going to go out on a limb and just say All it. Right. I'm going to say it. I believe that Doc Savage, uh, in 33... Uh, you would not yet seen uh, Nazism have its rise in Germany. You, like it, it was just a barely nascent. Well, thing. yeah.
0: Throughout the twenties, it was it was yeah. well uh, being watched, but was, everybody figured that the Weimar Republic and a lot of other things. Yeah. Would, nobody uh, prevail.
1: Nobody predicted in you know at that time period that it was going to go quite as far as it wound up going. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, I definitely say that. Uh, you're still in the early 30s. You're still kind of in that safe zone where Hitler was still coming around in, on the rise of uh, the National Socialist Party. It was still kind of there, but Mussolini was more uh, prevalent
1: than Hitler at that time. Now, I, what year was uh, Superman first appearing?
0: Oh, goodness. You're going to have to tax me on that one because I cannot recall off the... Uh,
1: <laughs> Attack, oh, Internet. No, oh, uh, yeah. My point here is that Doc Savage... Uh, might very well have been the uh, kind of origin point for Superman.
0: Yeah, first appearance in Action Comics number one is 1938.
1: So I believe that, I mean, well, there's a very uh, anti Nazi narrative, you know, very anti, you know. Oh, um, well,
0: yeah, that's uh, because uh, Jerry know, Siegel Superman. and Joel uh, Schuster were uh, not fans of the Nazi movement. <laughs>
1: Well, sure, but uh, the point being that right. I believe that the mythos behind Doc Savage, the concept of the Superman, uh, because it had been the idea of a Superman, had been so maligned and misused by the Nazis. Uh, it was uh, Simon & Schuster that yep, Joel Schuster. basically took it back. I mean, they reclaimed it and said, Hey, instead of a narrative of a, you know, bulletproof Superman, uh, we're going to make him an alien from far away uh, who, you know, has a great love for his adopted homeland. Uh, you know, make him the outsider. Well, yeah, I think uh, you're, which, you're totally on, on par right
0: there that there is a uh, connection between Doc Savage and Superman. I mean, obviously, uh, super, Doc Savage has a lot of things combined into one. He's kind of a gestalt character, but he's really good. He's a really nice guy. He, means, he uses abilities not to uh, oppress others or show his supremacy, oh, yeah. but rather tries to help people who need uh, his and his team's help. And he also has a large assortment of uh, henchmen, if you really want to call them that, or oh. associates. Trusted allies. That Yeah, they're kind of a little bit in awe of them, but they have skills that he lacks. And he needs them just as much as they need his, you know, super strength and nigh invulnerability.
1: vulnerability Yeah, that uh, his uh, unique abilities still leave him alone. Uh, you know, he is still just one person. So, you know, even Doc Savage needed help.
0: Right, and we would also uh, like to talk about Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, even though that they're science fiction, but we're going to leave that for uh, another time. Actually, yeah, we're going to revisit that at a later date.
1: Those two are worthy of their own episode at a later date? Well, yeah,
0: that'll lead us to A.E. Van Gogh and uh, others that, uh, you know, all the way up into the modern age of science fiction where I think that that's where they belong.
1: Yeah, Uh, but to tie these together, uh, this episode has been about uh, cataloging a progression of events, so to speak. Not not direct. There were plenty of little leaps and things like that in between uh, that have not been cataloged here, but we we really wanted to hit the big notes on some of the most influential events in the writing of science fiction, because that genre uh, had a great deal to do with, as I wound it up at the end there, the Dawn of the Pulp Superhero. Yep. Uh, which is a huge facet of gaming and geek so, culture, and it's such a beloved part of our here and now that I, I just really liked the idea of going back to that, that first uh, cause and you know, watching the slow progression over almost two centuries uh, that eventually brought us to now.
0: Yeah, and, you know, science fiction has different approaches. There is science fiction, and there is science fact. And sometimes I think uh, we get a little confused in that, and uh, that's another uh, topic for another day. Star Trek would be notorious for that, the later generations specifically, like where they try to pseudo-explain everything through the... If we change the phase ray through the deflector screen, we'll be able to change the warp frequency module later. Okay, thank you. But, you know, you just could have said some stuff, and I would have been just fine.
1: Yeah, just, you know, uh, have Scotty say, you know, Oh, we've got to visit a gas station, sir. We're all out to." Juice. Well, it's the lithium yeah. crystals, I'm or happy. it's this
0: huge, uh, you know, versus uh, this gizmo and whiz thing. Uh, we yeah.
1: need the MacGuffin!
0: Yes, so... <laughs> We need fresh hamsters for don't the wheel. Canium, so... <laughs> right, and uh, tropish as it is, there's a reason that, you know, you don't need to go that far into it. Uh, the science is slowly coming out that we may indeed do this, and a lot of these antecedents that we talk about were later proved to be true. You know, the reanimation of life from dead matter, from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, still is a driving force. Like, And one of the ethical questions remains, should you?
1: Yeah, that- Probably You're
0: tampering with some forces you may not understand or fully appreciate the limitations there. And and also the fact that, uh, you know, the Isle of Dr. Moreau has some very serious complications for ethics and the management of what we do with the uh, understanding of genetics that we have right now.
1: Every single tale that we have mentioned, up to and including Doc Savage, Uh, highlights some highly questionable decision-making, including Doc Savage, where uh, if those who have read some of the early pulp novels of Doc Savage are familiar with uh, the use of a special treatment that eliminates the criminal impulse it allows a person to lead a happy life, Uh, and he reformed many criminals through this. Uh, (laughs) Now, you know... uh, it brings to mind bits of Clockwork Orange, doesn't it? It huh. sure does. Now um, that's that's, uh, <laughs> but all of the things that we mentioned today take us back to that conflict between, you know, we can, but should we? Yeah, and in that is
0: some questions and also some uh, ways to theorize and debate about these things without actually engaging into their ap- actual application and
1: to apply it to a game. Uh, to game mechanics, and to game play. Uh, when you're designing or working in a science fiction narrative, uh, that's the overarching theme that you can harvest again and again, wonderfully so, The just because you can, should you? Never you split can- up the party. <laughs> Always check for traps.
0: <laughs> and never trust a smiling NPC.
1: <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, a cheerful DM is not... Smiling for you, (laughs) he is merely smiling at you. (laughs) No, no, good stuff, very enjoyable. Yeah, so we hope you enjoyed this little
0: ramble around. It wasn't too game heavy, and we'll be coming at you next week with some more game topic.
1: Um, Yeah, back to the traditional, to the the game. Yeah, we wanted
0: to take a little time out and talk about it. Maybe we'll do uh, a Cthulhuween sort of uh,
1: Cthulhuween. Yeah,
0: we'll talk about some stuff. I'm, I'm oh. sure we'll talk about something. I don't know why. But oh. well, we'll figure it out. But uh, either way, we hope you enjoyed our little podcast here. And, of course, you can always download the Anchor app and leave us a message. And we'll put you on our show and talk about you in good ways. Yes. Or you can get a hold of us on our Facebook page. There's the Screaming. screaming, Glad to see you folks are enjoying that one. Uh, trying to keep some little content coming in there with the memes. Look, well, me and Mike's applying those. So,
1: uh. <laughs> oh, always good for a laugh.
0: Behold the meme farms. I shall take this meme. It is my meme now. <laughs> I shall take your meme and now use it on my own. Okay.
1: So yeah, we hold the field in which I grow my, my memes, <laughs> and I won't see that it is barren. <laughs> oh no. Ah, yeah.
0: So yeah, uh, get a hold of us there. Or of course, you can get all this on Twitter. Me at Deathhand Gaming and myself at
1: uh, Magi Box.
0: Right on. And uh, of course. I think that'll do it for us. And so, until next time, may May the dice dice
1: always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.